Welcome to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. No surprise, we had a great discussion with Bruce Persolite, chairman and founder of the Mount Vernon yeah, Company. It was a really awesome conversation with Bruce. And you know you've made it in this business when you're just known by your first name and Bruce is on that list. When you say Bruce around Boston, and you're talking about real estate, everybody knows Bruce Persolite is the guy. So we really enjoyed it. Bruce is a luminary in the real estate business in Boston and now in Southern New Hampshire and Florida. And you'll hear more about that, how he's grown from buying and flipping a condo in Beacon Hill to an empire that includes 2,000 plus apartments, five hotels, and a bunch of other holdings. This is a really, really exciting conversation. Including, I think, very interestingly, Nantucket Magazine, which he'll talk about. Bruce is a multi-dimensional person. He's a leader. He's been extremely philanthropic and a major fundraiser for some of New England's most important institutions. So we hope you enjoy this interview. We'll have him back again at some point and go even deeper, but we were really thrilled to have Bruce in. And this was a lot of fun. Here we go. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by our friend, Bruce Persley, the founder and chairman of Mount Vernon Company. Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure being here. So Bruce, you've been a friend for many years. We've always admired your story. And we're going to ask you to start at the beginning because we think it's one of the most fascinating real estate stories and a great example of what can happen in this industry. So if you could go all the way back and talk to us about how you got your start in the business and how your career started out, and then we'll get to forming the Mount Vernon Company. Well, it certainly was unconventional in this industry. I started in the advertising business and I was always fascinated with advertising. I worked for what was the largest ad agency in Boston and worked on major national consumer products like Parker Brothers Games, Ked Sneakers and Converse and A&W Root Beer and so on and so on. And it gave me a very good perspective as to how that world worked. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, quite frankly. But I accidentally got into the real estate business by buying a small condominium on the wrong side of Beacon Hill and fixed it up with my own two hands. And within a very short period of time, I sold it and doubled the value of the condominium. By the way, the purchase price was $23,000. So we were not talking big numbers here. And then I decided to do the next one and I continued doing it. And then a recession hit and I kept succeeding. And the broker said to me, either you're the luckiest guy in the world or you're doing something different. And it dawned on me that I was applying a consumer marketing mindset to fixing up these properties. And I decided that, gee, maybe there's an idea for a book about this. But before that, I said, I think it's time for me to switch professions. So I left to go to Leggett McCall, which was at the time the largest commercial developer in the city. And I became director of marketing and got enough exposure to the commercial business that I realized residential was what really appealed to me. I tried to convince the partners that large-scale residential was something they should consider. And my thesis was that if a company goes out of business, it can leave its building, but the employees still need to go home and have a roof over their head. They were wonderful guys, but they did not share my vision. 
and I decided, well, I think I want to start up my own company. So before I left, I had received an offer from Little Brown to do a book that would apply my understanding of the consumer marketing world to real estate. And the book was called Packaging Your Home for Profit. It was the first book of its kind. Now the term is staging. And there's a number of terms that I believe emanated from this. I think this was one of the most unattributed <laughs> source of real estate thinking because I, I saw bits and pieces of it everywhere. But it kind of launched me into another realm. And I set up my own company called the Mount Vernon Company, which was based on a small deal we did on Mount Vernon Company and Beacon Hill. The irony, of course, is that Mount Vernon Company was named after a developer called the Mount Vernon Company in the late 1800s. Huh. And so people say, well, what is the historic reference to Boston? And I said, other than the Mount Vernon name on a street, there was absolutely no connection other than some profit motive a motivated developer. So the street was named after a developer. It was. It was <laughs> something quite poetic about this. We thought you were just a presidential scholar and <laughs> back to, to George Washington days. I started investing and my first deal of any substance was a small office building at 139 Main Street in Kendall Square. And Kendall Square at the time was certainly not what it is. But you had MIT was there. Oh, it's sort of, MIT was there, and that was about it. And for those who follow history, Kendall Square was going to be the essentially the headquarters of NASA, the Space Center, because John Kennedy was in the White House and he wanted to bring home the bacon. And when he died, Lyndon Johnson took over. The Space Center became the Houston Space Center. So MIT was there, but by and large... Kendall Square laid fallow for a long time. I absolutely had no vision that this was coming, nor did I know what I was doing. So I bought this little building, and by sheer luck, Mass Ioneer needed a storage facility across the river, and they approached me about signing a long-term lease. I hadn't even closed on the building yet, and they came along, and I said, golly, that sounds good. And I did the math and I realized that I was actually going to have, as my first deal, a seven-figure hit. Two weeks before the deal almost fell apart, I had every penny I had in the deal in legal fees, $42,000, and I would have been broke had it fallen apart. The deal happened and it provided the seed money for me to launch my business. What followed next was the early 90s and the massive recession we had here. In real estate terms, it was probably a real estate depression, but I had liquidity. And I also had not gotten myself in a position with any lenders where I needed to get concessions. I went to Larry Fish, who had just started Citizens Bank in Boston. And I went to his office and I was, uh, I looked like I was about 12. He said, you seem like a nice kid, but I probably can't lend you because 
I can't lend to anyone who's had any issues for any amount of money with the FDIC during the market slowdown. And I said, well, guess what? I'm your guy. He became my lender and we were buying in the back bay for $75 a foot. I put a business plan together called Buy the Back Bay. And I went and shopped around. I could have bought with proper funding about 100 buildings in the back bay at 70 to $90 a foot. And no one would bite. So I went and did it as best I could on my own. And I still own some of those buildings. And you went around trying to raise the equity to do it. I did. Real estate was such a dirty word. I mean, it was a real estate depression. Values had absolutely cratered. No one wanted to touch the stuff. Then the market started to claw its way back. We had bought it, myself and a couple of other people. I had purchased some rental buildings in Brighton for $24,000 a unit, buildings that I still own. And then the market began to take off. And there were a few other market dips, which fortunately, for whatever reason, I was able to smell them out and sold and bought into them. And it's the ups and downs which really work to my favor. You ask any bond trader or equities traders, they don't make money when the market's flat. They make money when it goes up and down and because you can make the spread either way. And that's what I was able to do. I became very focused on market movements and was small enough where I could sell, wait, buy back. And that accelerated the returns. So that was the foundation. So at that point, you're using Bruce's equity. You maybe didn't like it at the time, but you were using Bruce's equity. You had your lender and you were assembling a portfolio at that point. And in the 90s, how many units were you up to? I think you've recently started to acquire hotels and develop hotels, but so everybody knows you built an amazing portfolio in a pretty short period of time there. You know, it was still relatively small, maybe 300 units or something like that. And it has accelerated. What you learn in this business is once you get going, it's actually a lot easier to get bigger than it does to get you to the point where you can launch a legitimate acquisition and development company. And the bigger you get, the bigger you get. So I started to bring on some more people and get a little more aggressive. However, I'm quite risk averse, so nothing was highly leveraged, nor would I do a deal that if it failed, I would start at square one. I have an aversion to not sleeping at night. So the deals were all fundamentally sound, mm -hmm. but the volatility of the market, you can't control. So once again, right place, right time. There's no question if I'd started this business in Cleveland, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So Boston did some remarkable things during that period. And then I just continued to grow the business. Everything was a story. You know, we did some crazy crazy deals. We like crazy. Yeah. We'd like to hear the craziest sometimes <laughs> if you're willing to share. I'll, I'll tell you just a quick one. I used to go to a place called the F&T Diner in Kendall Square. It was this wonderful old diner. And I used to go with my attorney after work. And Friday nights, we go to the diner. We became friendly with the bartender. And finally, 
bartender comes up to us and says, boys, I hate to break it to you. And the F&T is being sold. Some developer bought it and is going to sell it to MIT and the party's over. And I said to the guy, I said, Sean, I said, I hate to break it to you. I'm the buyer. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't throw you out. He's been canvassing for a while. Yeah. But then we started investing in Newbury Street and Newbury Street did incredibly well. It was one of those experiences where we'd buy a building, sell it for three times what we paid for it, but it barely made money when we owned it. And there was this whole dynamic of people buying real estate without really any economic basis. And Newry Street has gone through some very dramatic changes. It, three years ago, people thought it was dead. Now it's booming again. There's a very high beta factor on, on Newbury Street. But we continued buying in Brighton. And the big next step for us was during the recession in 2000. Clearly, we weren't around because we'd be reminding you. But it was like 2012 or, or something. Yeah, yeah. Things got very, very slow. And we decided that Alston was ready for new development. And nothing of consequence had been built in Alston in over half a century. And I found a site that was owned by my former employer who had it in a fund and the fund's expiration date was coming up and they needed to close out the fund. So I bought this piece of land while I had it under agreement I didn't quite agree with what they were building. So I repermitted it while I had it under agreement, which the BRA at the time allows you to do. I'm permitting a building I don't even own. And the day we close, a press release comes out from the city explaining this new development. And the seller was like, huh? So we started the first major, quote, luxury development in Alston history. And then while we had it under agreement, we knew that if we succeeded, it would raise the value of all the properties around it. So we acquired two other development sites and put under agreement three other existing buildings. And before we knew it, we controlled the neighborhood. It was called the Alston Green District. We got the city to agree to a name. We were working on actually changing the T-stop to the Alston Green District. And a lot of the local brokers thought we were absolutely crazy to have these kind of rents in Alston. Because it was Alston, a completely different type of product for Alston at the time. It was new, shiny, amenitized, fitness centered. We had teed up a dog walking service. And it was something that was absolutely out of place. Give us some context for how different the rent profile was in the green district versus the walk-up product that was already in the market? Are we talking a dollar a foot, $2 a foot, 50%? I would say the premium was probably 40 to 50%. Wow. It takes guts to do that. It was dramatic. But we sat there and said, wait a minute, we've got the green line right in front of us. We're within walking distance to a West Campus at BU. We're not ridiculously far from BC. We're also 
quite accessible to the Longwood Medical Center because the bus from Longwood goes down Harvard Ave. And yeah, it was a gamble. So we built the first building, which is called the Element. And then we built a second one called the Eco. And then we built the third building and it was a huge success. And I wasn't planning on selling it. And then we had a number of people inquire. We finally put out some feelers and we doubled the asset value in from start to finish in three years. The price per unit was 540000 a unit, which ironically, in today's heightened interest rate environment, it's probably worth the same yeah. amount of money. And that's about replacement cost these days yeah. with hard and soft costs where, right. where they are. In but the if land. we were to sell it, the market value isn't very different. No, it's, that's a great exit. That stands up to this day. Yeah. Nine and a half years later to have the building, I would not rule out buying it back again at some point. <laughs> but that launched us into yeah. the development world. And since that point, we developed the Radius, which is at the corner of Western Avenue. And, and you have a phase two there, right? We have a phase two that we've just permitted. And by the way, when we built that, people thought we were crazy too. It was that part of Alston had not seen much development. And we pre-leased the building 100% before we opened, which by the way, we did on each of the Green District buildings. And then we developed another building called the Art House around the corner. And we have a number of infill projects we've done in the meantime. So Alston and Brighton has been very good to us. And we like to think that we were part of the Renaissance. I remember when the Green District came online because it became a hotbed of, of residential base for the knowledge economy. It was people who were in residency at the medical center, at the hospitals. It was grad students at BC and BU. It gave folks a different type of place to live that you'd maybe find in another city where there's a lot of new construction project, but in Austin and Brighton didn't exist at the time. Well, you're exactly right. And the newest building was called The Edge. And my wife was pregnant at the time and we held a Christmas party for the tenants. And I wanted my wife to come with me. So we went to this tenant party. There were more obstetricians in that room than there were at than the group we were seeing at Mass General. You don't appreciate the quality of tenants and the general population here is just not common in the rest of the country at large. There are more smart people per square foot in greater Boston than maybe anywhere in the country. Even just driving here and we're sitting in, in Brighton at Bruce's office. Mike and I drove here from the financial district and we were struck. We, we drove down Sur Drive, you pass BU's new jigsaw puzzle building, you pass the domes of Harvard, and that's all in a two-mile stretch. You pass all these institutions and people take it for granted, I think, sometimes in this city. But when we have outside investors come in, whether it's a multifamily deal we're selling, a medical office we're selling, a retail site we're selling, they're all struck by how much institutional activity there is, academic and healthcare-related institutional activity there is. So we might take it for granted, but we see every day investors are excited about it and notice it here. That's been a theme for you, Bruce. When we were at BC, we did student rentals. We were brokering student rentals when we were in college. And 
there was a large audience that we would put into 3135 South Street that you owned. Yeah. So it's been a theme for you. We're talking about Kendall Square. I know you've done stuff. I think you still owe us a commissioner too, but it was still Look, it is the driver here and companies, and I've always said companies don't come here because they want to. They Companies come here because they have to. And we have a quality labor force that is the feeder to almost everything. But I have to say, it makes life easier as an apartment owner. I have experimented a bit down in Florida. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, I did own an apartment building once down there. My line is, in Boston, a bad tenant leaves you with a dirty refrigerator. In Florida, a bad tenant leaves with the refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a different experience. Uh, I will say this. Today's Florida is probably as attractive a investment market as ever. The population growth is unbelievably strong. The governor has done a very good job in managing the growth of the state. Clearly, the tax equation there is drawing people and it's different. The work we've done down there, if you want to call it work, is developing homes in Palm Beach. And the market appreciation has been almost ridiculous. And we got kind of lucky. We tied up a bunch of sites and then Goldman Sachs decided to have a big presence down there. So I've got an involvement in Nantucket and know Nantucket very well. Palm Beach makes Nantucket look like affordable housing. The price per square foot for the products that we've been selling down there is about $3,000 a foot. And that is not super high-end custom product. It's high quality, but it's not extraordinary. And the, the pricing in Nantucket has people think it's sky high. Well, go for a market tour in Palm Beach. So we've done four consecutive deals down there. The returns are unusual. I do think it's flattening out. I think that the days of doubling asset values in 12 to 18 months is over. It's a fascinating market. We were talking the other day, there's some people who have sold businesses, whether it's in Boston or New York, whatever, moved down to Palm Beach, sold the house in Palm Beach and made more money on the sale of their home in Palm Beach than they did on the original (laughs) sale of a business, which got them there. But, And by the way, word of caution, we all complain about taxes up here. The property tax in Palm Beach is not for the faint of heart. It is unbelievable. Because the values are so high, almost ridiculously high, a $20 million house in Palm Beach is not extraordinary. It's not an extraordinary house, but your tax bill is extraordinary. Mm. It's $400,000. Which is an interesting corollary to Nantucket where maybe the assessor is listening. I hope not, but (laughs) taxes there are low. Right. On, on a relative basis, they're they are very reasonable. Exceedingly low. We're definitely going to come back to Nantucket because we have a lot that we want to talk to you about. You have a fascinating presence on that island in a number of ways. But I think if we talk a little bit more through the portfolio, you had discipline clearly, held on to some assets, monetized certain assets when the market was right, and you've made some great decisions. What has been the theme behind the assets that you've held? You've owned some of these properties for many, many years. What's the consistent theme on those assets? Obviously, we want to be in locations that are irreplaceable. We started out in Alston and Brighton and a lot of things on public transportation. That has changed somewhat. Public transportation is not what it used to be. And 
to me, Uber is the new public transportation. There are places where you can walk downtown quicker than waiting for the T, but that certainly started it. It's interesting about these older buildings is they're built incredibly well and they're relatively inexpensive to run. When you build a brand new building, even though we're building them and we build very high quality buildings, they're still not built as well as a building that was built in the 40s. Those buildings are bulletproof. And you buy them, there's affordable requirement. So you get 100% of the income. There's no concierge, there's no gym, there's no wasted common space. They tend to be more profitable. But in answer to your question, we buy high quality buildings in strategic locations. We put money into them. We're still the high quality provider in a entry-level market. And that's what we want to be because we get the best tenants, we get more retention, and it yields a, a great result. We have our existing portfolio of units is about 2,000 units. And we have some larger ones in New Hampshire that we're working on that are in the mm -hmm. pipeline. So it won't be long before we have about 2,500 units. I will say this, though, that not everything we sold was a great decision to sell. There's a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda looking in the rearview mirror. I have become the master of the 1031. And if you can sell a building, take the equity and buy two buildings, then you'd sell those and buy four buildings, your returns start to go up like a hockey stick. And if I had an outside unlimited funding source, I wouldn't have sold things to buy new things. And so it isn't like we sold buildings whose values disappeared. We bought things where we could get a better return. You are a master of that. We seem to remember a transaction that we recently worked on together, a piece of land where I think your multiple was really strong. And that was the well-timed exit with the life science rush that we saw. Oh, uh, that was lucky. No, no, that was smart. That was in the path of progress. Yeah, when you have a good broker, that's that's what happened. And we can attest to the quality of the portfolio too. Your assets, whether they're the vintage assets, the new assets, you build the best product in the market. And unfortunately, we can also attest that you don't like to sell those old ones despite our trying. But something interesting, and you talked a little bit about where you're headed, but You've seemed to start joint venturing with some partners these days. You're working with great groups like National Development, like Torrington Properties, Beacon Communities, all really well-heeled groups. And it's a testament to you and the track record you built. You're partnering up with these best-in-class groups. Is that a conscious strategy? Are you starting to move more towards the JV model? Or is that just that's happened to how the last couple of years have unfolded? Well, as our deals have gotten larger, it's essential. Our biggest deal by far is a joint venture with National. We had purchased a building on 1200 Soldiers Field Road, which is where our office is. And it just so happens to be next to WBZ. A deal was in the works where BZ wanted a new studio, but didn't want to pay for it. And they had excess land. And the idea was BC would swap their land for new studio and then jettison the rest of their land for development. We ended up securing that deal with CBS Corporate in New York. And I brought in National because the deal was very large and very complex. And we just received approval last week to build 700,000 square feet of life science, 
a 70,000 square foot absolute state-of-the-art facility for WBZ and an 82-unit apartment building. So this is a campus. This is a campus, and this is way too big. And it happens to be adjacent to another fairly high-profile campus as well. Yes. Being near Harvard is a real asset, and the site will have views of the river, and it will be part of the renaissance of Alston. And now we have Harvard down the street with their Enterprise Research mm -hmm. Park, and we have another direct neighbor that is going to build a 500,000 square foot life science facility. This will become a life science cluster. And it just so happens that it will help our residential mm -hmm. because just the jobs being created in our building alone will be 1,600 jobs. When you do the math in Alston, there will be thousands of new jobs. And as much as you're seeing development, there will be more jobs created than apartment units. Yeah, I think it's amazing around these campuses. There's so much economic activity driven, whether it's research or healthcare delivery, academic. It takes the third party real estate market to really be a catalyst up and down the corridor. You can't wait for the institution to make it happen because they don't move quickly. And I think this will be a great jump start to this becoming the quarter that it really should be. It's going to be a great project. And I think people forget too that Harvard, it's not just their athletic fields that are over here, but the whole science, graduate science campus is on this side of the river now, Harvard Business School. Mark Zuckerberg is building the Kempner Institute, which is a $500 million project. So there's a lot of institutional development happening over here. It's not just market rate rental. That's right. I'm the Paulson building right. that just went up. And, and then there's Harvard Business School, obviously. So this is an extraordinary place. So funny because if you've been in Boston long enough, the word Alston, first thing that comes into your head is keg party. But Alston is probably, along with the seaport, the hottest epicenters of development in all of Boston. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth talking a little bit about some of your non-bottom line focused developments. And we worked on one recently at 140 Clarendon, which is a mixed building in the back bay that we sold for the YWCA. And I can distinctly remember the phone call with Bruce where he decided, all right, I'm not going to focus on maximizing the asset from an economic standpoint. I'm going to focus on maximizing it from a, a goodwill standpoint. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I know you, you worked with a couple partners, but you were the mastermind behind really creating and enhancing affordable housing for Boston with that project. We knew the area well. We had developed a hotel, which I will just go into that. So we bought what was the first YWCA in America at 40 Berkeley Street. And it looked like a Cold War building. It, I'm not sure there's going to be a lot of architectural awards given to that person not at all. who originally created it. But 40 Berkeley was interesting because it had 200 rooms, small rooms. It was across from what was the Ben Franklin Institute, but it's within walking distance of all the great restaurants in the South End. And, and I looked at it and said, this could be a really interesting hotel. So we purchased it and had a plan. The hotel had some issues. It had 45 affordable units in the hotel that were 
deed it. You couldn't do it anything about it. And the bathrooms were in the hallways. And what we did was came up with a design and a theme for the building. The hotel's called the Revolution. And the premise is that the American Revolution didn't stop in 1776, it just began. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that revolution took place here. And when we say revolution, we meant revolution of ideas and concepts and movements and products. And Boston is responsible for the creation of more innovations in technology, science, consumer products, sports, than any place in the world. We also started movements like the women's suffrage movement. And it's a myriad of mind-driven ideas that made Boston, Boston. And we wanted to memorialize that. So we took this building and we came up with this theme. And it has everything depicted that was created, but in a cool way, we had the top of graffiti art, artist in America do a mural that features all the players from Susan B. Anthony to Martin Luther King to Ben Franklin and so on and so forth. Everything in the building in one way or another talks about a uh, revolution. The only problem was when we went to get a loan and we told the banks what we were doing, that we were going to make 30% have bathrooms in the units and the rest of them in the hallways. We had this affordable thing. I may have broken a record on this building. We went to 31 lenders and 30 of them said no. And, you know, in hindsight, you, you might have said, well, maybe if you look at the collective wisdom of these banks, you should listen. But I did not. And we went ahead, put a lot of money into this thing and created what arguably is the coolest hotel in Boston. Yeah. This year, it may have been the best performing hotel in terms of occupancy. It was a home run, but it gave me an understanding of this area and gave me the understanding of how this whole affordable thing works. As luck would have it, we found another building. We convinced the city to let us move the affordable tenants out of our building and give them a better environment. And now we have a building that does not have a, an affordable component. A lot of these people went, or some of them went to 140 Clarendon, which is also a Y facility. And I said, well, why don't I just do another revolution hotel here? And we looked at the building every which way. We had architects and designers and so on. And it, and then the market slowed down in a big way. The first one was risky. This one may have been even riskier because it was bigger and the affordable component. And this was, was March, April, 2020. So yes. this was COVID. Yeah, yeah. it was COVID in the hotel world right. was disastrous. And so we went and bid on it actually before COVID. We did not receive the winning bid and I was really pretty disappointed. And then COVID hit and I was really relieved. And <laughs> then it sat there and literally one night I was lying in bed and I said, wait a minute, you've got 80 affordables in this thing. And that's not going to be easy to deal with. And it's, it's hard to mix 
populations like that and have it work. And the building, it had a theater in it, it had a school in it. I mean, this was a complicated building. And I said, why don't we just go with the flow and make it all affordable? So I had some interactions with the Beacon communities and brought them in. We exposed the idea to the city, which in a nanosecond wrapped their arms around it. And fast forward, it will be the first high-rise affordable housing product in what is essentially the Back Bay. Yeah, in the heart of Back Bay. That's an amazing cross street. Sensational location. And the city was thrilled. The governor was thrilled. You know, it's we get compensated for it, but not the way you would otherwise. And it was a true success story. And it was amazing to watch and took a lot of hard work and persistence, sort of like your financing of the hotel. 30 no's and one yes, that's a masterclass in persistence. So and for people that aren't based in Boston, so you can appreciate you're next to the headquarters of Bain Capital. You're next to the University Club, which is under a major renovation. You're next to the Raffles Hotel. This is a really special block. And for someone to come up with a solution to preserve that housing in the affordable community, just amazing. If we can go back to the revolution for a second, because I lived on Gray Street. When my wife and I got married, we were living at 58 Gray. And I remember the first meeting when it was the neighborhood, the Ellis came together to hear about what your plans were. And I stood up and it wasn't because we knew you. It just stood up because I said, the best possible person to be buying this property at the end of Gray Street is Bruce, because he's going to deliver something really cool and it's going to add to the neighborhood, not take away from it, which is exactly what happened. The ground floor is incredibly well activated. You have Cosmica there, the great restaurant for the neighborhood. That's a place where if you're in the back bay in the south end and you need to charge your phone and get a cup of coffee and meet someone, you're walking right in there and it's a perfect place to do it. So kudos. That's just been a great project that really added to that neighborhood in an amazing, you know, they call it the golden triangle, whatever they call it. But that was a windswept part of that neighborhood. It was the ignored side of that little cluster. And for the record, as of today, it's number four on Condé Nast's Boston Hotels, which is pretty amazing. You're ahead of names like the Mandarin, the Four Seasons, Dalton Street. So for an adaptive reuse with an affordable housing mix in an infill location like that, it's pretty amazing to be number four yeah. on that list. Very cool place. In 2019, it was named number one. Yeah, well, uh, and I'll I, still take top five. It's but pretty amazing. You can imagine the reaction of the people that own the high-end hotels in Boston, that this hotel, that many units of which do not have a bathroom, right. rated number one. So uh, the, thank you. I mean, the neighborhood was not all as enthusiastic as you were. There were a lot of people who were- Mike was trying to get a listing from you, I think. At the yeah, time, so. you know. A lot of people were suspicious and thought we were, I don't know what. We've become very close with this neighborhood and it really, truly a win-win. Yeah, totally. Want to go to Nantucket? Because we think, like a lot of people, we love Nantucket and you play a very interesting role out there from a real estate standpoint, but also as the publisher of Nantucket Magazine and Magazine which is really the, I wouldn't call it a, a niche media publication because it's read around the world. It's a really celebrated publication, but also has a very local post on the island. We want to talk a little bit about your Nantucket real estate holdings from a hospitality standpoint. You've done an incredible job with some of these properties. And then and then maybe we'll get into how you stepped into the publishing world out there, which maybe was a, an ode to your, your early days <laughs> in the ad world and marketing world. So I had come to Nantucket as a kid, and so it was not unfamiliar. But I didn't buy a house there until, I don't know, maybe now it's 25 years ago, so it's not yesterday, but I was kind of a newcomer. When I 
got there, I, I tend to like to get involved in, in the communities where I live. And I was asked by the chairman of the Nantucket Historic Association if I would be interested in getting involved because they had been trying to rebuild the Whaling Museum through the board. But we all know developing buildings is not necessarily a skill set that someone who has never developed a building right. naturally possesses. And that's a tough place to learn how to do it. Too. Yes. The chairman said, would you possibly be interested in joining the board and helping us get this building going? They had gone through three architects. They had wasted a lot of money. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, I'd love to do that. And so my first act indeed was to help get that project going. And I stayed there for six months. The winter was so cold that the harbor froze. We couldn't get the steel into the harbor. <laughs> it was really quite something. But we built the building on time, under budget. And it's probably, well, it's rated, not that there are that many of them, but there's more than you think, that top museum, whaling museum of its kind in the world. That was a really gratifying experience. And I have a funny story. When I got married, my wife, who is Dutch, we had a whole bunch of her family coming in from Holland. And she said, can you please go get hotel rooms? So I came home and I said, I got the rooms. And she said, okay, that's great. I said, we close on the building in a, in a month. <laughs> we got the rooms already. She said, what are you talking about? I said, you don't ask a real estate guy to go get hotel rooms and not specify that I'm not supposed to buy them. Uh, so we bought 76 Main. We put up all our guests. And I felt that Nantucket's hotel scene was getting a little frumpy. And so we brought in this cool designer and, and, uh, and made this hotel the cutting edge on Nantucket. And it was received incredibly well. And Lark Hotels brings a very cool touch. Yes. Lark was a, for those who don't know, a boutique hotel flag, I guess. They do a great job. And then I decided to buy what was the Nesbit Inn, which was the oldest continuously running hotel in Nantucket. The only time it wasn't was during the Civil War when it was used as a convalescent home for wounded soldiers. And we did a major job, lifted up the hotel, dug a foundation underneath it, doubled the size of it. And that too has been very successful. And we're eyeing one more, maybe, maybe we, not. We, we hope you do, because I think in true Nantucket fashion, those projects and the Whaling Museum, incredibly well done, tasteful, but blend completely in with the island, which is, of course, a very important theme, especially downtown. Yeah. I mean, look, they were not only fun, but they have worked out incredibly well. When we had our children born on Nantucket and they were born in the old hospital, which if anyone knows Nantucket, the animal hospital is gorgeous. The human hospital, not so much. This, this is an amazing feat, what you and your team and friends did with the Nantucket Cottage Hospital. Well, in life, there are certain milestones that you count as the most important things you've ever done. You get married, your kids, and it goes downhill from there. But we felt very connected to Nantucket because our kids were born in the hospital. And for those who don't know Nantucket real well, 
you can be born in Hyannis and an hour later come to Nantucket and you are not a native. Right. Uh, Even if you lived there for a hundred years. You could be born on the ferry and you're not a native. Being a Nantucket native is is a special thing. Yeah. And we didn't do that just so we could say they were born there, just we felt comfortable. And the hospital needed a new facility and I had been on the board just as a board member. And one thing led to another and we decided, my wife and I, to get involved in a big way. And we threw ourselves into it. This project had been stalled for years and it was desperate. The operating room had Armstrong ceiling tile above it with asbestos insulation in the attic. This thing is bad, as bad as it gets. And catering to the most affluent population in America, just, you know, it was long overdue. So my wife and I decided that we would roll up our sleeves and we stepped up and made our own donation that became a catalyst for other people. And if you won't say it, we will, because it was a $10 million commitment, which, which is amazing. Well, I've learned an interesting lesson. I'm actually going to be writing a book about fundraising, but there are people on the Nantucket that are vastly wealthier than we are. But what that did is allowed us to go to anyone and ask them for whatever, because they could never say, hey, wait a minute, when you step up, I'll step up. Other people did step up. A lot of people stepped up and we were able to raise 120 million. In fact, wow. it was going so well that I think I was on track. We had 123 million. And I said, I can just keep going. And they said, no, that's fine because it starts to take money away from other nonprofits. Tommy's wife, Maddie Greeley, is on the board of the Nantucket Boys and Girls Club. It's an important place for us and for you too. You've been incredibly supportive. So we can just send it down the street. (laughs) But we do have a brand new, beautiful hospital. And when you go to it, seeing the building and the equipment and the facilities, it gives you a lot of confidence. Doctors there have told us that it delivers much better care. And if you can save a life by, you know, having this kind of facility on the island, because guess what? There are times where you cannot get off the island, then it makes whatever we did worth it. It's a super important cause and an amazing project. Also, probably the most beautiful hospital or healthcare building we've ever seen. I mean, it is spectacular, but it's one of a long list of charities that you've been involved with. The Boys and Girls Club, as Mike mentioned, you've been super generous there. The Whaling Museum you talked about, the Cottage Hospital, Mass General, Make-A-Wish, Habitat for Humanity, and most recently, the Corey C. Griffin Foundation, which we very much appreciate your participation there. Philanthropy is a big part of what you do, clearly, and curious how big of a part of your day is that now? It must take a lot of time and effort and certainly economic contributions, but that has become a big part of your persona, and I'm sure that was by design. Well, I'm not sure it was by design, but it certainly is a big part of my existence. I, two years ago, became the chairman of the Edward Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate, which a lot of people don't didn't quite know what it was. And there's this extraordinary building across from the JFK Library that has a exact replica of the United States Senate chamber. If you haven't seen it, it's jaw-dropping. But it was designed to teach civics to kids, but it was shooting an ant with an elephant gun. And I was asked to 
take it over by Vicky Kennedy, who's become the ambassador to Austria. And I stepped back and said, wait a minute, this building should have a national role. And we have repositioned it. We've made it completely bipartisan. You hear the name Kennedy and you think this is a left-leaning facility. It is not. We have a serious group of senators, both Republicans and Democrats, on our board. And we've set a different agenda. And the agenda is to make this institute have national impact. Well, we created something called the Senate Project. And if there is a problem in this country that we need to worry about, it's our political divide. So we are taking senators on the far right and the far left, bringing them into our chamber and having them debate with the idea of finding common ground, much the same way Ted Kennedy did with Orrin Hatch. And the Hatch Foundation is our partner. Fox TV is our media partner. We've done two of these events. We're doing another one in Utah at the Hatch Foundation. Then we're coming back to Boston. We plan to do a whole series of these. And we're also taking our civics program and making that a national program. And so I'm not sure there's much higher calling right now than to spend time to hopefully help depolarize the world. Yeah, yeah. it's now's the time. We've seen a swell of awareness of the facility. And I think it's because it's become more of a bipartisan approach. Our sister Megan is in the government affairs business and spends a ton of time involved with different programs over there. And I think that it's absolutely on the right trajectory under good leadership. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. I was invited to the White House about a month ago. They want to know what we're doing. They want to know how they can be of help. Well, names like Hatch, Fox, and Kennedy on the same ticket. Yeah, You're exactly. doing something right. Exactly. Right? But it was interesting because I had interviewed Vicki Kennedy in our magazine and she was a little confused because at the end of the interview, she said, well, now that I've done this for you, I want you to be chairman of the Institute. I said, well, I thought I was doing something for you. Speaking of interviewing, because you're much better at this than we are, but it leads us right to M Magazine, which is just a very, very cool publication, but much more than that. I won't say empire because you probably get to tell me not to use that word, but it really has grown. Can you talk about how that all came to be? Yeah. I mean, I used to be in the advertising business way back when, so it's still in my blood, the, that whole media graphic thing. And Nantucket had had a bunch of magazines, but they weren't really very good. So we started this publication and it took quite a while to get its footing. I had a partner, a fellow named Tom DuPont, who started the DuPont Registry magazines, and we became very good friends, but he had delegated a lot of this to some other folks who didn't quite get it. And so I bought Tom out, and the goal was to create a publication that really encapsulated what Nantucket was about, not in the sense of shingled houses and hydrangeas and manicured lawns, but what really makes Nantucket special, and that is the population of the island. There are more fascinating people in Nantucket between, I'd say, late April and the end of August than anywhere on the planet. So the idea was we wanted put together something that was visually attractive, that was entertaining to read, but also had substance. And there are a lot of these lifestyle magazines. You flip through it with your right hand and with your left hand, you pick it up and put it in the trash. 
the focus of our magazine was that we would provide insight into some of the world's most interesting, successful people and share it with each other. So the magazine took off and our production quality is unusually high. We import our paper from Germany. We have a special ink. We have the best. It's printed on a Heidelberg press. It's a coffee table book. Right. And we celebrated our 20th anniversary. We have had almost 20 years of uninterrupted revenue growth. That doesn't mean I can retire off this <laughs> magazine because the cost side of doing this is very high. So this is a passion project. But it has become part of the glue, I think, that keeps Nantucket together. Oh, absolutely. People, people want to know about these people. We did an interview with Andy Card, who was on a board at the Institute, walking us through the day of 9-11. Right. And, and, awesome. and we recorded it. And it is extraordinary. Yeah. And we were the first magazine in the world to have Joe Biden on the cover, which some people liked, some people didn't, <laughs> but that's not our choice to- Better than the issue with Luke Russell and the couple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that much right now. We, we, like, we like, that's a great picture. <laughs> yeah. And on and on and on. But our tagline is at the local magazine that's read worldwide. We now have a companion product called the Nantucket Current, which is a free online e-newspaper, the Inquirer and Mirror, which is the newspaper of record, whatever that means, which has been on the island for 200 years. We exceeded their circulation in 18 months. And the, our digital product and their digital product, we have five times the readership. And the newspaper, we have probably four times the readership. So between the N Magazine and the current, we are now Statistically, it's not even a close call, the dominant media source on Nantucket. And I think the reach is amazing because someone can take a day trip to Nantucket and they end up subscribing to The Current. They grab Nantucket Magazine. They listen to all your multimedia stuff. But then you do a great job of giving people a pulse of the island, but also the human interest stories are amazing. And I think that's what's cool about it. It's not just XYZ billionaire that sold a company and here's a profile. It's someone from the commercial fisheries or it's someone whose family's been out there for a long time as a year-round resident that has a very interesting story. So I think it's very cool what you've built and we hope you continue to expand it. Well, and again, it is a lot of fun. My favorite story, I don't know why, but we have two heart surgeons that are brothers-in-law that live in Nantucket. One is a fellow named Toby Cosgrove, who was the head of the Cleveland Clinic and considered the top cardiac surgeon in the world. And then his brother-in-law, Kerry Akins, who was one of the top cardiac surgeons at MGH, who's now retired. And the story was called Heart to Heart. And it was about these two guys that have saved countless lives. And that you go to their house and you're sitting in the room with two of the best cardiac surgeons, arguably in the world. And that's Nantucket. And you're just as likely to see them in line at the juice bar. And <laughs> Nantucket is a place of hidden talent that it's remarkable. And that's what our magazine wants to chronicle. So you're a real estate developer, philanthropist, you're a publisher, you're working on your third book, which leads to a question we'd like to ask all of our guests. What are you reading right now? What book is on your night table? 
Gosh, you know, it's a luxury I don't really have. However, David McCulloch's book. They're all great. He spoke in my graduation at BC. Yeah. Mike was awake for five minutes of that. Nah, <laughs> I, uh, his view of what it is to be an American, and that's my kind of book. Yeah. I like to read books that are inspiring. You know, there's enough dark stories in the world that you don't need. To, I don't see movies that are dark either. It's like, if I want to see dark, I'll turn on the news. And that's what you're reading. What are you buying this year? What do you see in the market? We're an interesting time. It's January, 2023, interesting time in the market. What is Mount Vernon Company focused on this year? Clearly the environment is difficult. Pen making things pencil out with these interest rates and today's construction costs and the challenges we're seeing in Boston, I will be very candid. I'm not excited about the political leadership in the city right now. And I think this too shall pass, but it's not conducive. The irony is it plays to all of our best interest because supply will dry up. During the days of rent control, it was the best thing that ever happened to landlords because the supply imbalance was ridiculous. So putting the brakes on supply production, quite honestly, doesn't bother me a whole lot. But in answer to your question, we like the hotel business, the leisure hotel business, and we are looking around for unusual properties that we can apply my marketing orientation to. We're also doing a lot in Southern New Hampshire. We purchased the Fox Run Mall, which is going to be a very interesting deal. We're doing some of the retail development up there. The Portsmouth area is very interesting to us, but we're like everyone. We're being careful and we're waiting for sellers to get the message that the asset that they thought was worth X a year and a half ago is maybe worth Y today. And until that realization happens, the market will be frozen. The transactions will slow down dramatically. And we're in a strong position to buy, but we're not going to buy for the sake of buying. Yeah. You've been disciplined and been active at the right times. So I would bet on Bruce and Mount Vernon Company going forward. And we're looking forward to continuing our work with you. You've been a great friend and we've been excited to work on a number of deals and hope we can find something in 23 that makes sense. Well, you've had some great executions for us and it's been a very good relationship. So couldn't agree more. We look forward to it. We appreciate the relationship very much. We also appreciate the hour you just gave us. So thank you very much for having us in your office and spending the time. And again, as Mike said, we look forward to working together this year and next and congratulations on all the success, Bruce. Thank you very much. Thank you.